You're listening to Irish Radio Canada's Home and Abroad, and uh, the Canadian Association of Irish Studies have an annual conference that, of course, over the last few years, they would not have had the opportunity to meet. But they're back meeting in Hamilton this year. And the Canadian Association of Irish Studies has been serving the students of Irish culture for over 30 years, seeking to foster and encourage the study of Irish culture in Canada. It also works to encourage young scholars to develop the next generation of Irish studies enthusiasts as well as support discussions of current issues. And the upcoming conference is happening, as I say, in Hamilton. And we've heard there from Gavin Foster, and we're now going to hear from the Ambassador, uh, Emma McKee, who is also a keynote speaker. Ambassador, thanks a million for taking a few minutes on this one. Yeah, my pleasure, Austin. Great to, great to talk again, and hello to all your listeners. Yeah, it's, it's, it's great to see them being able to convene again. And uh, I'd like to pay a tribute to, to, to all of the organisers, and Professor Jenkins in particular taking the lead on this one. But yeah, it's great to have them together, and uh, and it's it's also great for me as an ambassador for my colleagues in in the embassy and the consulate to have such a vibrant community of scholars. When I started looking at this project, where we're going to create a list of the 50 Irish lives uh, in Canada of Irish people who made a big impact here, thanks to email, I was able to outreach to some of the great historians here of the Irish story, and within 48 hours, I assembled half a dozen of them who were great. I mean, they're just fantastic scholars, um, and they're doing amazing work in terms of telling that story to the highest professional and academic standards, you know, which is, which is great. And you can sample some of this in the Dictionary of Canadian Biography. And they're great entries, but you could pop in any Irish surname and you'll get a fantastic story about about somebody who has come from Ireland or is, uh, you know, Irish-Canadian. But uh, it's only thanks to scholars doing that work, but also scholars encouraging and mentoring young students to go in uh, and explore Irish studies, you know, that, that this continues and it's, it's growing in strength and, and we do whatever we can to, to help support it, you know. So, yeah, I'd be delighted to go along and meet them, give an address then. You know, one of the great things about the Irish studies in Canada is we hear Canada is from coast to coast to coast. Mm. And despite all the regional differences and everything else, faculty of Irish studies is from coast to coast to coast. Yeah, you can get uh, degree courses or you can just get uh, elective courses where you can get points. Uh, even here locally, we have the University of Ottawa has a Celtic Studies course, which which covers a multitude of different subjects, and and that's fantastic to see. And you've got leading scholars like Mark McGowan and uh, and St Michael's in Toronto doing fantastic work, and, and and his recent book on the Imperial Irish, for example, which is a fascinating study. You have like Keneally, for example, up in our honorary consul up in, in Concordia, who is particularly focused on Irish literature and so on, and. Jane McCaughey and, you know, uh, Dave Wilson and, and I, I know, I mean, I don't want to get into naming all the names, but yeah, they, they just do fantastic work mentoring young students and, and that leads, leads to the next generation of scholars, you know, and, and the story, there's so much to be told in that story. Ambassador, when you talk like that from outside the embassy. Yeah. The ordinary person on the street has no concept of the breadth of your portfolio. And by that, <laughs> I mean, you know, here we're talking about academics this week. Yeah. Yeah. Last week, we were talking about history, yes, and photography. Yeah, yeah. You know, but we've talked about trade, and there's so much more, and social history, and how the Irish influenced politics. Yeah. That it's so expansive, and yet for the Irishman on the street, the depth and breadth of that relationship is grossly misunderstood. Yeah, in a way, there's so many dimensions to it. Like, I was recently in Toronto uh, supporting uh, Tourism Ireland, who brought over... Um, people from the hospitality sector, the hotels and, and tour groups in Ireland. And they're doing a four-city tour to promote their Press the Green Button campaign. 
And I was delighted to be able to, to talk to do two events where they, we had a lunch with Canadian travel journalists. And then in the evening, uh, there was a gala dinner with a huge ballroom full of Canadian tour and travel operators and, and talked to them about Ireland. And Tourism Ireland did a great job. And that's just one aspect of it, you know. And it's great to see it, by the way, because flights are now resuming and tours mm-hmm. are now resuming the hospitality sector has proven to be, you know, very resilient. Great support, I have to say, from the Irish government as well, and they acknowledge that. But that's just one part of it. Yeah, from the embassy's point of view, it's a very privileged position in a way because we get a bead on all of these different things that are happening. Um, we're, we're, for example, on the Canadian-Ireland Parliamentary Friendship Group. You know, we've been outreaching to them. Uh, we did. We started a speaker series with them where MPs and TDs in the friendship group are listening to and having questions with experts in the field. So, for example, Mark McGowan has done a session with them on, on Irish heritage and we'll have more sessions coming up with them. And, and that's a really important dimension to our work here in Ottawa. James Maloney, MP, is, is leader of that group and he's a fantastic support and, and was the man who, who created Irish Heritage Month. All kinds of cooperation with Global Affairs Canada on the political side. Yeah, I mean, we're just very privileged to be able to, to do this and where we can kind of stimulate uh, interest, interesting projects, you know. It can be very serendipitous too. You know, I was writing a, a birthday greeting letter for uh, a woman 90 years of age, but she's been a great supporter. 90 years of age and been a great supporter of the Irish community. So I said, well, what do I put in this letter? So I, I Googled her year, the year of her birth, 1932, and just happened to discover, which was, had gone, hadn't realized it, but Amelia Earhart had traveled from Newfoundland to Derry. Now she was on her way to Paris, but it was very, she had headwinds and ice and mechanical problems. And it was the first solo trip across the Atlantic by a woman. And she ends up in Derry uh, on the 21st of May, 90 years ago. And so I began to follow a trail. And then somebody at the embassy said, oh, my aunt is a leading member of the Amelia Earhart Legacy Association in Derry. So I got in touch with them and they put me in touch with Mayor Coombs from Harbour Grace. And I'm going to meet him and go to the statue of Amelia Earhart. And then I have a good friend in Derry who said, oh, yeah, Larry Hassan met Amelia Earhart. And he was a good friend of my mother and my grandmother. And I was like, what? All of these connections just came out of one simple Google search, you know. Yeah. But again, yeah. fascinating connection because that flight was historic, but it's a, it's a direct link between Newfoundland and, and Derry. So, yeah, in the embassy, you're just uh, it's a real pleasure when you go down these rabbit holes and you discover amazing things. So I know at the uh, conference, the Canadian Association of Sto- Irish Studies, we're in the 100-year anniversary of 1922, and we talked to Gavin Foster earlier on on the Civil War. Will you be making any reference to that period in your address i was thinking of looking at the different futures we imagined because when you study history you kind of have to put yourself in the shoes of people at the time and the future that they imagined i just want to kind of explore what were the different futures we had in mind because the futures that they imagined are not the futures that actually materialized you know we can't really know what ancient gaelic ireland and the people then imagined as a future we can probably guess that they saw the future pretty much like the past, because in ancient Gaelic Ireland, they looked at time as being circular rather than linear. We're we're very much thinking linear progress, all that kind of stuff. They probably didn't. They saw things repeating themselves in cycles. We probably know that. But as you scroll forward, you know, you have the French Revolution, obviously, profoundly changed people's expectations of Ireland's future. The French Revolution encouraged 
Irish leaders to think about an Ireland which wasn't divided religiously between Protestant and Catholics, that they imagined a republic in which everybody was a citizen. So that was it. That was a future that they imagined. Certainly after the abolition of our parliament in, in 1800, which I, I, was a disastrous event in terms of Irish history, it led to huge decline in the economy and set the scene for the famine. But once that happened, people began to wonder, well, how do we get home rule? And of course, they looked to Canada. Because Canada confederated in, in 1867, and people in Ireland are saying, well, that's what we want. So they imagined a future that was very much like Canada. They wanted a home rule parliament, so on and so forth. And Canada was the model. And so when John Redmond gets home rule on the books in, in 1914, where does he go? He goes to Canada for a triumphal tour as the man who delivered home rule, basically got Ireland what Canada had earned. So that was the future they imagined. And then, of course, you have the iconic 1916 rising. You know, which is a hugely, hugely powerful, powerful event, but it dramatically changes the imagined future. The imagined future is no longer Canada. The imagined future is actually full, independent republic, much closer to what the revolutionaries back in the 1790s imagined. You know, it's a profound change. The change was so profound that guys who had joined the British Army, encouraged by John Redmond, came back to a completely different country, and in many ways. Never, never kind of integrated again. They had a different experience, which just didn't fit with the new future. Future then changes again dramatically with partition. You know, we, we suddenly are presented with an imposed partition, which we never imagined. And suddenly our future is now a divided island, which had different perspective completely on our future. And then, of course, in the by the 1950s, we are in serious economic trouble. And people imagine the future as, as Brendan Behan famously quipped, let's hand Ireland back to the British and apologize for the state we've left it in. You know, there was a real concern that we didn't have a future economically. And so there's then a search for foreign direct investment uh, to boost the economy, because, of course, we had lost our industrial base thanks to partition, which was all around Belfast. So we mm-hmm. just had an agricultural economy with some minor manufacturing. In a way, the crisis in the 1950s forces us to imagine a different Ireland, not a protected Ireland behind high tariff walls, but rather a global Ireland. That's the root of the global Ireland, where we embrace foreign direct investment, we embrace trade, we embrace the European Union, well, what becomes eventually the European Union. And so our, this becomes our future. And then I suppose the current, I probably could go as far as, like, what do we imagine the future to be now? You know, there's so much talk about a united Ireland. We've got the Good Friday Agreement. Brexit was, again, changed our vision of the future. I, I never, Nobody ever thought that Brexit was going to happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, people thought it was just a silly notion amongst a hard and slightly eccentric group within the Tory party. Memorably called, if you excuse the expression, by John Major, the bastards, he used to refer to them as, you know, but they, they managed to force this on the agenda and then get a referendum dramatically changed the future and, of course, uh, has presented problems in the peace process, you know. Mm -hmm. So I think it's just to kind of look at that, and particularly because Canada is such an interesting constitutional model and was so influential in in Irish thinking, but also, conversely, that Ireland itself influenced Canada because, you know, Thomas Darcy McGee, you know, a history buff, uh, highly aware of the history of Ireland and kept his eye on British direct rule in Ireland because we don't have a parliament. We've lost that, as I said, in 1800. He's looking at British rule in Ireland and says, well, that's a model for Canada, except we'll do exactly the opposite. So we want a country that is not ruled like Ireland. We want a country that's democratic and tolerant and compassionate uh, and embracing all different identities, you know. So 
Ireland itself and British misrule in Ireland during the 1800s becomes an object lesson in how not to run a country and helps to shape Canada. So, yeah, it's a Canadian-Irish connection. It's fascinating from that historical point of view, you know. Ambassador, I know that the discussions after this are going to be powerful. can tell from between yourself and Gavin and the other participants in the conference that it will be very stimulating and informative Mm. and I wish I could be there. I want to thank you again. I know you have a busy schedule. I do want to thank you for taking the time. The conference is taking place in Hamilton. I know they put up the papers afterwards and the website for that is CanadianIrishStudies.org and you can get the full details there and we have been chatting with Ambassador M. McKee. Thanks, Austin. Always a pleasure.